Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I was about to complain that I'm cold, but I thought that our listeners who are in (laughs) Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Canada, and Russia, for that matter, we do have listeners there, they would probably be really upset with me for complaining that it's cold, but it is colder than normal. Listen, we had a snow day today. School was canceled. School was canceled. How much snow was there? (laughs) there was no snow (laughs) it was a gorgeous sunny day (laughs) it was a perfect 45 degrees (laughs) there was no snow and we just had a free day in the middle of the week it was beautiful I am just thinking about how you and I met in the context of working in Wisconsin, where you'd get like 600 inches of snow and they'd be like you can come to class Get over <laughs> I kept kitty litter in my car so that I could get out of the parking lot. And then you're in Mississippi and they're like, snow might happen somewhere. We should go to class. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, there was a light dusting of road salt. <laughs> that looks like snow. We should probably cancel class. It's white and it's round and it's on the <laughs> on my porch on the snow day. (sighs) Anyway. Well, what's been going on with you lately? I actually had a wonderful experience lately. I planned another food pantry benefit concert. And uh, this is probably obvious to people who organize stuff on the regular, but we did the concert in the community this time. We did the concert at uh, University Baptist Church in Hattiesburg and, you know, went during their Wednesday night class time and the most of the community was there already. And we didn't 
get to, to weigh all of the food because it wouldn't fit in their car. The people who came to take the food to the food pantry, it wouldn't all fit in their car. So some of it was in my car, so it didn't get weighed. But the, un, the incompleted total for this benefit concert was 317 pounds of food. That's amazing. Congratulations. It was so awesome. I'm so excited. I want to do one every semester at a different place in the community. Like, of course you go to the community if you want to engage the community. Hello. (laughs) So I'm learning and uh, it was awesome. So yeah, that's what's been going on with me. What's going on with you? Well, I, like many of our listeners, I actually met several of them in person while I was there went to the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition and wait, the Meg Quigley (laughs) Vivaldi bassoon competition and symposium. There we go. Don't ask me to say it. (laughs) It was my first time going. I was also a member of the team. It was amazing. Oh my God. The feeling of it just was unlike anything else I've ever experienced. And I've been to a lot of different conferences, a lot of different types of conferences, and nothing has ever really replicated what Meg Quigley was. So I was on the competition committee. So I was working very closely with the other members of the competition committee. Shout out to Daryl Hale, Amy Pollard, and Stacey Spring. The cool thing was they put me in charge of proctoring the competition and keeping track of timings. And so the bummer was I had to like cut off the women when they were done, but I got to watch every single person compete in every single round. And Mm. that was just so illuminating, inspiring to watch these young female bassoonists just throw down there were just like flames and lasers and fireworks coming out of their bassoons. But then there was also the symposium part of it. And it was this like conference and people were performing and everyone sounded awesome. And the environment was super supportive and empowering. And I was so inspired. I just looked at Nick Custer and I said, I want to go home and like lock myself in a practice room and never stop. That's all so awesome. It, it was just so great. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. The only downside is that it's every other year. That's literally several mm-hmm. times since I've come home, I've been like, and I'll get to go to my quickly next year. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Why do I have to wait two years? It was just super inspiring. And shout Aww. out to Elizabeth Ball Crawford, who is a listener, enthusiastic listener. And she and I hung out at one of the receptions and just giggled our heinies off. And <laughs> meeting her was such a highlight of my MQBC experience. And she's just too much fun. Oh, that's the best. Yes. If you're ever allowed to bring an oboe groupie, please bring me. Uh, Certainly. But most recently, I was at a school recruiting trip visiting a St. Louis school district. And I had a couple hours off in between. I was going to kind of every school in the district and I had a break and I said, hey, can I go to one of your practice rooms and just, you know, get some work done? And they said, yeah. And so I sit down to practice and one, I am in a chair that is maybe like six inches off the ground and I'm five foot two and this chair was too short for me. I was like, I know it's a middle school, but is it a middle school for ants? Like, I don't get it. 
And then the practice room, and this is not criticism. I'm so thankful that they let me, you know, practice in their space, but it was like right on the edge of the band room. And were you super self-conscious? No, it sounded like the band was in the room with me. It was so loud. I was having to look at the light on the metronome instead of actually listening to it. And then in the practice room next to me, they had a brass band practicing for solo and an ensemble. So I felt like I was in the middle of a Charles Ives extravaganza, (laughs) very near to the ground. And so while I would not say that practicing in a band room is the strangest practice scenario. That gave me the idea for today's dish topic, which is what is the weirdest place that you have ever practiced? Well, the weirdest place I have ever practiced was when I went back to my parents' house for a winter break, I guess it must've been four years ago. I had to practice, but my brother and his baby, his infant baby were also staying in the house. So I had to practice really, really quietly. So I ended up setting up in my parents' walk-in closet. And (laughs) it was a really weird place to practice. We had a lot of listener suggestions of people practicing in closets. And I'll tell you, it is very stark. (laughs) Like you just hear every single thing. There is no forgiveness in the sound. And uh, that is the last time I'll ever be in a closet. You know what I mean? (laughs) You're corny. Oh my gosh. We also had a lot that were very much like my only remotely. I don't have actually any great stories, but I think we've all had a, I am in this hotel room my neighbors are not allowed about to let me practice. I've got to find somewhere in this hotel that mm-hmm. I can make this work. So we had people in like hotel bathrooms, hotel laundry rooms. Someone was in a hotel parking lot. Parking garage, yeah. Parking garage. <laughs> okay, let's let's crack into these. So my friend James Jeter says he practiced in a Greyhound bus station men's room in Houston, Texas. Very similarly, Sue Heineman, I used to practice in the airport restroom en route to auditions, unless I was taking the bus, in which case, Greyhound Station. Okay, lots of double reads at the Greyhound. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Sherrock says, at lunchtime in my car, in the car park at work. Telena says, inside the playpen while my toddler rampaged around outside of it. (laughs) She's in her cone of safety inside the playpen, practicing as her toddler is screaming and running around. I love that so much. That's amazing. Blair Tyndall says, wooden indoor playground airplane in the Minneapolis airport when it snowed in at 2 a.m. So she's in a indoor playground, inside of an airplane in the playground, playing the oboe. It's idyllic. (laughs) Chris says he practiced in his car during a a traffic jam before a jury. Can I just go on the record saying we do not encourage people to practice while they are driving? I felt like this was a very common thing that I was like, uh... Okay, people, practice in your parked car. (laughs) These must also be oboists. Can you practice the bassoon in a car? (laughs) (laughs) Or you can just be like Keith, who says, I do long tones and articulation exercises on the read in the car while driving all the time. 
it's really not that weird until you make eye contact with the other drivers at the red light. <laughs> Keith, I applaud your dedication to your craft. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. <laughs> Oh, Mora says a moving car on the way to lessons. So she does not specify. I'm going to assume that she's being safe and she's being driven. That's still not safe. What if you have to slam off the brakes and your reed goes into your teeth and hello, people? <laughs> I'm just going to say no to moving vehicles and playing the oboe. Oh, we also had a lot of bathrooms. Yes. Vincent. Ellen said, he he said, I won one position playing at least five minutes of my audition in the bathroom of the music director's hotel room. Sebastian echoes that sentiment. My bathroom. The acoustic is so cool and made me sound so much better. Yeah, Sebastian, you know who else has figured that out? Every vocalist on the planet in every school of music ever. Yes, the bathroom has very good uh, acoustics. Um, we also had some very beautiful nature submissions. <laughs> Christoph says he had, he practiced in a forest. It was an extremely hot day in Austria where air cons are not common. The room I practiced in at my parents' house was in the attic. So I went to the nearby forest and practiced there in the cool shade of the trees. Sign me up. I want to practice in a forest like a wood nymph. Catherine says up a tree in botanic gardens what? in the guard's carriage at on the old red rattler trains. I don't know if I have anything to respond to that with. <laughs> Up a tree. Okay. Up a tree. I'm going to give the last word to my beloved Ryan Walsh, who said the captain's sleeping quarters in a firehouse in Philadelphia. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. Uh 
we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Joey Grimmer, Principal Bassoon of the Kennedy Center Opera House Orchestra and Washington National Opera Orchestra. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Could you start by telling us how you came to the bassoon? Well, I started bassoon in sixth grade in the Texas band program, and I went in the summer before sixth grade, and they had all the instruments out, and I knew ahead of time that I didn't want to play any of the high instruments. So I said no to flute, clarinet, oboe, so I gravitated more towards the low instruments, and I saw the bassoon, said, what is that? (laughs) So I tried it out, could make a sound. So I narrowed it down to that, trombone, and euphonium, and thought about it for a week, and then decided the bassoon. Can you talk us through your educational journey? So I started in Houston and studied with Eric Arbiter, who was the uh, the associate principal bassoon at Houston Symphony, and he's retiring this year. And then before high school, uh, my family moved to Colorado. So I studied with Gary Moody at Colorado State, and then Yoshi Ishikawa at University of Colorado. And then I went to undergrad at Cincinnati. I studied with Bill Winstead for four years, and then went down to back to Houston to Rice and studied with Ben Caymans. I am always fascinated by um, a person's journey into their professional job. Would you talk to us a little bit about how you came to uh, to your current job and what that audition process was like for you? Long and arduous. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I knew it wasn't going to be easy from the start. So I started taking professional auditions when I was a junior. And fortunately, Cincinnati had a, a fund that they were able to help pay for uh, some audition costs. So the first audition I took was for second bassoon in the San Francisco Ballet, uh, I think March of my junior year. So I flew out to San Francisco, you know, thought I was prepared, but fell on my face. But they had me redo a couple of excerpts and they just got worse and worse. So I did not advance, but I had a great trip to San Francisco and it was a really eye-opening moment and made me realize how hard you actually had to work to get a job in music. So I kept at it and then started advancing and was runner-up in a couple auditions and then went to grad school and, you know, just kept taking auditions. I think one year, uh, the summer between my first and second year of my master's degree, I took 12 auditions. Whoa, in one summer? Yeah, there were a lot that year. It was Whoa. it was crazy. So then uh, the day after graduation from Rice, I flew up to Detroit and the Michigan Opera Theater had an audition. So I took that and then I won. So that was the first audition I won, a second bassoon in that orchestra. And then the next week, the Naples Philharmonic in Florida had a one-year, possibly permanent audition for assistant and second. And I took that and won that as well. And I think... The fact that I just won an audition the previous week took a lot of the pressure off Mm. and I was able to relax a lot more and it didn't seem so life or death. So I played in in Naples for the year, uh, second to Kristen Sonneborn, who was uh, a great mentor and friend. And 
uh, found out a couple months in that the the person who I was filling in for, she was, she decided to come back. So I was back to square one and, you know, didn't have any job prospects. So I kept taking auditions, making the finals, um, nothing hit yet. And at the time, my wife uh, was working on her PhD in musicology at Michigan. So after that season, I moved up to Ann Arbor and just took as many playing opportunities as I can, used all the connections that I made in the past few years and freelanced for a few months. And then in November, there was an audition for the Houston Grand Opera. I took that and won. And I'd been, I'd played a couple shows with them when I was in school and it was a great experience. So I was familiar with the orchestra and I played two shows there and then I went to Jacksonville, where through a connection I had from the summer festival I play in, I had the last third of the season as acting principal. So they, there were a couple of different people that had played the job the previous 10 years or so, and none of them worked out for the long term. So they, they wanted to kind of mitigate the risk, and they split up the, the year between three of us. So I had the tail third of the season. And then they had the audition a month after I got there. And then I won the audition and I was really thrilled about that because it was a principal spot in a full-time orchestra. And I was like, great, I'm set. And then I saw this job open up in DC and I didn't really know much about it. And I'd never even heard of the orchestra, ironically, but I was looking around on the website and saw that they were doing a ring cycle the next year. It's like, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. So I went up and took the audition while on vacation, actually, with my wife's family. They have oh, their no. annual, annual beach vacation. <laughs> so I, I had to leave the beach vacation to go take the audition, and I missed three days of it. I'm still kind of mad about that. It, <laughs> it ended up okay. Could you tell us a little bit more about the process of preparing for auditions that you find has worked for you? So for this audition at the Kennedy Center, I, I was familiar with most of the excerpts, so nothing was truly new, but I printed out the list about three weeks beforehand and just started everything very slowly. And I usually would break up my practice sessions into three different parts or the day into three different practice sessions. Excuse me. So the first practice session would be about an hour and it would just be fundamentals. So scales, long tones, etudes, don't even touch the music. And then uh, in the afternoon practice for about an hour or two and really do detailed slow work on the excerpts. Ones that need, you know, the ones that you're nervous about, your weak links in the list. And then in the evening, that third practice session, just run the whole list and basically do a giant mock audition and record it and listen back to it. And take so you, you did a mock audition every day. Yeah. Just run the whole list. That's, that's takes a lot of discipline. Yeah. It's, it's not easy being a musician. <laughs> <laughs> also having your reads in order is, really important aspect of being prepared for an audition. 
so one audition I took when I was in grad school was for the Utah Symphony. And coming from Houston, you know, those climates are obviously very different. So I, I play every summer in Colorado. So I'm pretty familiar with high altitude playing, but it's always a bit of a gamble whenever you go up there for the first time. So I got to the audition two days beforehand and brought about 30 reads that, you know, could play the, could play the audition at sea level. And the first night I took all the reads out and only about 12 of them could play at all. So then I took those 12 and then the next day I narrowed it down to three. And then the morning of the audition, I narrowed it down to one. And then uh, I was the runner up on the audition and I think a lot of people had a lot of problems with their reads that week because there was the first big snowstorm of the season and people's reads weren't working, but I felt pretty confident with what I had. So this is somewhat related to Galit's question about preparation, but earlier you referred to those first few auditions that you took and them kind of illuminating what you had to do, like how you had to change your practicing and the work to be done. What are some of the distinctions that you made in your practicing? So what things do you look back about how you prepared for those initial auditions and kind of went, oh, that that didn't work? And how did your practice change when you made that flip in that experience? Well, something I I noticed in that first audition was I had I had wink like weak links in my list. So I was thinking, okay, as long as they don't ask this excerpt and this excerpt, I'll be fine. And of course they asked both of them in the first round. <laughs> so don't have any weak links. And just the way to do that is slow practice. That's the, that's the cure to everything and slow work with the tuner, making sure everything is nice and even and in time. Do you have a different ap- approach in an audition from one round to another? Mm. That's an interesting question. Uh, no. So I think that if you're playing well enough to be advanced from the first round, the committee likes what you're doing. So just, you know, stay the course and do what you've already presented. Uh, I've, I've heard some people say, you know, be more free and take more risks in the, the last round, but you should already have those risks already baked into your practice. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be too many risk taking in an audition. So having it sound like you're taking risk when it's really just a calculated practice. Exactly. Worked on the preparation. Oh, so that can be really difficult to do to make spontaneity, to make something that you've drilled so much sound spontaneous. What do you do to cultivate that as like the freshness in the playing? It's, it's all about just control over the instrument Mm. and, having your fundamentals down. Hmm. How do you feel that opera orchestra auditions versus symphony orchestra auditions, is there a different approach to each or because we spend perhaps less time with the opera excerpts, or maybe that's the question. Did you feel like in your training, you felt you spent less time with the opera excerpts? I'm, I'm just curious about how, those auditions differed from symphony orchestra auditions in your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think that the, the opera excerpts, a lot of them have more of a story wrapped up in, in them. 
So you kind of have to be able to change the mood of each one on a dime. So you're going from, you know, Zalame to Figaro. Those are two completely different pieces and you have to show how the stories are different. And a more practical advantage to the opera auditions is that there was no baggage from, you know, the symphony excerpts that I'd had. Mm. So a lot of these were fresh, you know, newer excerpts. So I didn't have any of the old bad habits that I had with the old excerpts that, you know, I started learning in freshman year. Mm -hmm. So I could come at it from a point of this is new and I can make this perfect from the beginning and I'm not fixing old errors. Kind of related, how do you feel that being a principal bassoon in a symphony orchestra differs from an opera orchestra? How are those experiences different once you're actually doing the job? Well, opera nights are a lot longer. <laughs> Longest symphony concerts are two, maybe two and a half hours, if you're lucky. You know, we did a ring cycle three years ago in Siegfried. It starts at 5 p.m. and then it ended at 11.15. It was over six hours long. <laughs> <laughs> So being able to have the endurance is really important, both physically and mentally. And I think my, my read style has changed a little bit. It's gone to more, more free-blowing, um, more reliance on my air and support rather than my embouchure uh, to keep the pitch up. And that has made it so I don't get tired, you know, nearly as quickly as before. And you know, if you're, if you're tired 30 minutes into an opera, you're going to have a bad night. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. Well, I, I'm just curious, logistically, we had Billy Short on the podcast and he talked about kind of a strategic bathroom situation, but on those nights with the Wagner operas and the really long pieces, what is the snack situation? Like, do you guys get a dinner break or do you just like have granola bars? In, uh, intermittent? Like, how do you keep your blood sugar? This is a very important question. Yes. <laughs> these, are th- these are the things that don't teach you in school. <laughs> but, you know, it's different for each one. Rheingold, it's two and a half hours long and there's no intermission. So don't drink water beforehand. Right. You don't want to have to because <laughs> you're, you're a captive audience. But it's, it's tough. So eat a, eat a light meal, but still eat food because you don't want to pass out. Uh, for the others, like Siegfried and Gutterdämmerung, we had a 40, like a 45-minute intermission for the first act. And they actually had box lunches for the audience members. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, they could make more money, too, because they could sell, sell the box sure. lunches. <laughs> But we, all the musicians, there's a canteen right next to the, to the opera house. And it's great to go over there for um, a snack or a meal. So we all you know, ran over there and ate our food during the first intermission. Because the first act of Gooder Demmering is, is two hours long as well. So you're starting at 5 p.m. So it's it good to have a couple snacks beforehand. Um, so, you know, you're playing at 6.30 and... You don't want to. You don't want to pass out at six thirty. So it's good to have snacks before, not a huge meal, and then you could have a bit bigger of a meal at the first intermission. And then it's only I think about an hour and twenty for the second act. And then you go to the third act. Do you ever catch anyone sneaking some peanuts and then blowing it to their horn during a tap? Like <laughs> munching away. Uh, not in the pit. I've, 
I've heard some people in the front row have some crinkly food. You know, people will have the, the cough drops and they, <laughs> we're all kind of glaring up from the pit. A couple instances we've, we had our, our old conductor, he turned around and yelled at somebody in the first row for talking during the oh, overture. No. <laughs> that, that was an experience. <laughs> so moving away from snacks, when you are on the other side of the audition process and you're listening to auditions, what do you find particularly impressive about candidates? When somebody just comes in and completely shines, what is it about their playing that you adore? I think control. Hmm. Control over the instrument is a a big factor. Uh, I just served on the the tuba committee for our orchestra uh, this past week. And I just wanted people to come in and just lay it down. You know, have it in, be in tune and in time. Those are the first two big criteria, I think. And if there's musicality on top of that, awesome. But a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll come in and things are either out of rhythm or, you know, there's some intervals that don't quite fit right. And you have to think to yourself, you know, I might sit next to this person for 30 years. So you can be a little more lenient in the beginning rounds, but then once you get to the semis and the finals, you know, you have to be a little more strict with your uh, standards, but I think just control and being able to, you know, do a nice, even diminuendo to nothing or uh, have really, uh, you know, even articulations. It's just, it all comes down to fundamentals and control. I have a quick follow-up for that. Yeah. How does that influence how you teach? So I teach a lot of fundamentals, obviously. Most of my lessons start with a scale and will address different articulations and evenness of tone throughout the scale. And then after the scale, we go over to an etude. And there's an etude curriculum that all the students go through. And, you know, if, if the etude's not up to snuff, they have to play it the next week. And this is what I did in grad school. And I think it's, it's a really great way uh, to teach uh, successful musicians. And it, it worked for me. And I know it's worked for several other people. And just having the, those fundamentals down. So maybe we might only even touch their solo piece that they're working on in the last five minutes of the lesson. Mm-hmm. But I feel like everything that we work on in the fundamentals and the attitudes will apply to everything else that they play. You know, things that we work on in solo pieces are so kind of nitpicky and micromanagey. I'm working more on making them a, a bassoonist and being able to play anything rather than just one specific piece. A thousand percent. So we spoke a little bit about kind of the logistics of being in an opera orchestra. And I'm curious about how you manage your practice time because you do teach and I would anticipate you want to have time for yourself and a day off every once in a while, but you do have certain expectations as a professional musician. And so when you're going in to do a four hour opera, I would anticipate that beforehand it's not a huge practice day. No, that, that day may, may only be an hour of, you know, scales and etudes. You know, I, I read through etudes a lot, and I feel like it's really helpful to keep me fresh and, you know, just keep the fundamentals in check. 
but yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go to a three hour practice session before a four hour opera. Right. So how do you manage or dole out your practice time during the season in order to find that intersection of preparation that doesn't impact your endurance? Usually uh, the the rehearsals later on in the cycles for the operas and the performances are in the evening. So I'll do most of the practicing in the, in the morning or early afternoon, and maybe just right after lunch. And that gives me enough time to kind of reset before I get you know, to the hall. What are some of your favorite etudes to play and also to teach? I think the, the Mildy scale and chord studies are very helpful and they're not easy. So people think they're, they're easy, but having, having everything be totally even and in control is, is very hard. So I make all the, the graduate students start with that. And then after that, they'll move on to the PRs, which those are, are challenging as well. And that the PRs are a large portion of Ben Kamen's teaching method for, for grad students. So everybody has to go through the PRs and they're, they're invaluable. So if you can do something extremely difficult for two pages, you know, when it comes in the wild in an opera or a symphony, or a line, you know, it's, it's going to be nothing because you're used to doing it for two pages. So it's, it makes, makes orchestra parts seem easy. Uh, for undergrads, I'll start with the, the Weisenborns. The 50 studies is a really helpful and we can start to touch on phrasing and um, musicianship. And it's not all just finger moving. So those are, those are the three big ones. And then there are others that, you know, each individual student has different needs. They can go to Orfici, Jacobi, Caprices. There's no shortage of good etude books. <laughs> so when you're listening to admission auditions and deciding who to accept into your studio, what are some factors that draw you to be interested in working with a particular young musician? Uh, we will ask them to change some things up. And if they're receptive to those changes, you know, and if they seem like they'll be easy to work with, that's a really attractive quality. If you know, we ask to change something and then they don't, that might be a tough four years, two or four years ahead of them. Uh, natural ability, of course, is important too. You know, having a, a, an individual drive is going to be really important. You know, maybe the person who doesn't have the best entrance audition, maybe they'll work harder than somebody else who had a great entrance audition for those four years. It's hard to predict that, but seeing how hungry somebody is when they come in into the door is, is really important as well. Are there any strategies that you like to use in teaching read making that you like to use in your read class that you find especially helpful for your students? Just knowing the, the cause and effect of, of read making. So it's not some black magic. You know, you, you scrape here, this is going to happen. You tighten the wire, this is going to happen. You flatten this wire, this is going to happen. And knowing all of these, these systems of remaking is, is really important. And becoming self-sufficient as early as possible, I think, is important, too. It's okay to play on bad reads at the beginning. That'll make you appreciate the good ones even more. And I just tell them, you know, you have to make a lot. Not every piece of cane is going to be a good read. Do you um, recommend that 
high school students learn how to make reads? How young, like when you say to start making them right away, do you mean really right away? Uh, probably more in undergrad. Okay. Because high school students, you know, they might, they might study with the same teacher in undergrad, but usually not. So some people have, you know, wildly different read styles. So I think it's good to, to know a little bit about the fundamentals of read making. So I'll, I'll teach them like wire adjustments, you know, how to scrape down a tip, things like that. But, you know, if they go off to school, they might learn a completely different way of, of making reads. And I think it's important to, to follow whatever that teacher is, is saying is their way. And then, you know, whatever, whatever they do after they leave the school is up to the student. So I, I'll teach adjustments mainly to high school students. Can you tell us about some favorite memories that you have from past performances, things that stick out in your mind as really important or memorable times that you've had on stage? The thing that comes to mind first is this ring cycle that we did three years ago. It, it's felt like a, a culmination of a lot of things in my life kind of combining. Uh, we had, I had just started a lease on a, a townhouse in uh, Virginia. I was living in my sister's basement whenever I came up to DC before that, because I was actually doing double duty in Jacksonville and Kennedy center. I was flying back and forth the first five months of the season. And I had an apartment in Jacksonville and was staying in my sister's basement. And uh, so I started a lease in Alexandria, moved in, and then my wife and dog moved there a couple weeks later while we were in the rehearsals. And we had been living you know, apart for the past two years. So that was a nice, uh, nice reunion. And then just doing this epic, you know, 16 hour Wagner project, you're just sitting in the middle, in the middle of the orchestra during Gitter Damerung, during the Siegfried's Ryan journey. It's just an amazing moment. And it just felt like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. Are there any uh, funny or maybe even embarrassing memories from being on stage that you'd like to share with our listeners? So there are, we're usually in the pit in the Kennedy Center, but every now and then we're, we play on stage. And one of those instances is Messiah. So every year we do a Messiah sing-along. It's just one day. We don't have a rehearsal. We just show up, play the show. And I was playing it two years ago, and we were near the end. It's like, all right, we're almost over. It's almost over. And I look down, and my read is not on my vocal anymore. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking around. I, we had like maybe two minutes left. I was like, I have no idea where it is. And I looked down, and it, it had fallen into my, my vest inside my tails. Oops. <laughs> So how it fell into there, I have no idea. But so I just reached down, grabbed it, put it back on and finished the show. And I don't think anybody noticed. Oh, good. You were just storing it for safety. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the read had had enough. Are there any pieces in the repertoire, orchestral or operatic, that you have not gotten the chance to play yet that you would love to? Well, I still haven't played first on The Writer's Spring. I played all four of the other parts, but have not played first, ironically. And they did it the year before I got here Uh, with Ski Ballet. So I'm hoping that comes around soon. And that's another reason why I 
decided to join the, I'm the new principal of the Harrisburg Symphony. There are a couple other members of my orchestra that are in this symphony, and it's about two hours away, and they do seven masterworks uh, a year, and I'm able to do about three or four of them. And like last week, we played Shostakovich 11, which was, I'd never played that before. And it was a great experience. We're doing Alpine Symphony next next month. That'll be a lot of fun. And the, I hope I can fill in some of my symphonic gaps mm. with that orchestra. So if Rider Spring comes around there, that, I'd be fine with that too. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any pieces that you've come across in the uh, opera repertoire that... Uh, should be bassoon excerpts, but are not yet. Maybe some hidden gems in the opera repertoire that are lesser known. Yeah, there are there are a couple moments uh, in some of the newer operas. Uh, we did Dead Man, Dead Man Walking. Oh, three what a great that, piece! That has some great bassoon moments. Um, there are a lot of these ballets that we've we're, we're the ballet orchestra for the, the county center as well. So there's a couple ballets that have come through that. Ballet music is really hard, mm-hmm. especially like the Prokofiev's. And we did a Strauss ballet last year called Whipped Cream. That had some crazy bassoon moments. And nobody's ever heard of this. No. I think it's making a comeback. They've done it a couple times in New York now. But yeah, that, that has some really hard bassoon stuff in it. So this came to mind when you were talking about playing the entire ring cycle, but you're also in multiple ensembles. And so I would be really interested in you talking to us and especially our listeners who many of them are students about how you prepare a part and how you study a score. I, when you're talking about learning 16 hours of music at a time, I, I was like, Oh, how does one kind of. Um, but also, you know, just balancing your two jobs. Um, yeah, talk to us about preparing parts and studying scores and whatnot. Well, I would I would be lying to you if I told you that I prepared all of the ring meticulously. There, there definitely were a couple moments where we were in rehearsal, the orchestra rehearsal, so the singers weren't there, where, you know, we're going along and then I'm the only one playing. It's like, oh, this is a solo. That would have been, okay, got to this. <laughs> And all right, I'll put a star by that, you know, practice. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I, I started from the beginning of Ryan Gold and was like, okay, this is just too much. You know, I'll, we have like 40 rehearsals for this. I'll, I'll figure it out. There, there's time. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a, a special case. Uh, so there was some learning on the job there. But usually if I get, you know, a three or four hour opera, I'll, I'll flip through it when I first get it, see if there's, if there's anything that's marked solo. That's important to take a look at. Uh, anything that looks really technical or in an odd key, you know, I'll go over and uh, I'll, you know, check out the scores because most of the operas that people do are in the public domain. So all the scores are on MSLP, very easily accessible. So I'll check to see what other, what the other instruments have. And, uh, you know, I, I try to show up a little more prepared now. That was, that was, that was in my first season. So I've <laughs> become wiser since then. So a full season of, um, of playing is a lot. And yeah. doing it year after year is 
a lot also. So what do you do to refill your inspirational well when you start to feel like it's becoming empty? So I go out to Colorado each summer and I do a lot of hiking when I'm out there. Mm. Hiking is a nice, nice way to get away. Uh, I'll go play tennis here with there's several musicians that play tennis and that's great too, because, you know, young people, old people, everybody loves tennis. So I'll, I'll play with, you know, people in their twenties, people in their sixties, seventies. It's great. You know, just keeping active. I think it's important. I, I will take, take breaks every now and then. So like after Christmas, I didn't play for a week, picked it back up. It was fine. You know, it might be different for brass players, but you know, woodwind players, I think we're lucky in that regard. And I think it's healthy to, to step away from it from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also very active in giving solo recitals. And I've seen you appear a lot in like chamber capacities and, and being a guest on various college campuses. It would be easy to not do that. I would guess that you have your hands really full. Um, so I'd love to hear yeah. how continuing to nurture yourself as a soloist uh, what that brings to you and why that's important to continue to cultivate. Yeah. This, this whole recital uh, masterclass thing has been a more recent development more in the past two or three years. And it's, it's been really interesting because that was kind of the bassoon solo repertoire was, was a, a, a repertoire of works that I didn't really touch for a couple of years there since getting playing jobs and it's been nice to kind of go back to that because uh, there's some great music there. And uh, if I don't have a lot of performances in a row, I kind of get a little antsy. So our my job at the Kennedy Center is a little interesting because sometimes we'll have a couple weeks in a row where I'm not needed. You know, there will be a musical uh, a musical that comes into the opera house and there's no no bassoon part. So I'll have you know five weeks off in a row. Okay. I have to do something to fill up my time there. Mm-hmm. So preparing for a solo recital is a great way to kind of, you know, keep things fresh, uh, keep the fundamentals in check and have something to work towards. Cause I think if, if, you know, I wasn't doing anything, things would get stagnant. What are some of your favorite solo and chamber music pieces to play? I really enjoyed playing this piece by Verdi called Capriccio. I did it at the, the IDRS conference two years ago and I, I did it at my master's recital and it's basically a Verdi bassoon concerto. I think it was recently rediscovered about 20 years ago and it's early Verdi. So it's, you know, very operatic and it's a bassoon solo. So that's two great combinations in my book. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Rossini bassoon concerto, you know, very similar. Also operatic in style. Uh, it might not have been written by him, but that's fine. It's good music. It yeah. <laughs> Music's music. <laughs> what is some advice that you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Just keep at it. You know, opportunities generally won't be handed to you and people don't know who you are. So you have to put yourself out there and be okay with failing a lot. You know, I've taken over 40 auditions. I have not won 40 auditions. So that's, that's a lot of failure and just, you know, learn from, from the times that you don't succeed. You know, every audition that I didn't win, you know, I learned something from them and had something that I could apply to the next one. Maybe this didn't go quite so well, so I need to tinker this and it'll be better the next time. 
So just keeping at it and take as many playing opportunities as you, as you can when you're in school. You know, play with different people in chamber groups, find the local orchestras, try to get on their sub list, have, take lessons with different people. Just put yourself out there. What exciting things do you have coming up that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Well, we have a couple of fun operas coming up. We're doing Eugene and Yegan, Tchaikovsky, which will be great, uh, Faust, Juno, Tosca, Falstaff. Got a couple of interesting ballets coming up. Just the repertoire coming up is, is always it's always interesting. Sometimes it's a little tough playing the same show night after night. That's that's another different thing about this job than say the Mets schedule. So the Met they have maybe four different operas each week and they're changing a different one each night. You know, we'll do fourteen traviatas in a row in the span of sixteen days. So it can be it can be a little challenging, you know, keeping things fresh in a in a run like that. Another funny story is uh, two years ago, I played The King and I at the Kennedy Center, and we had five, it was a five-week run. So we had eight shows a week, 40 shows. Ah. <laughs> exactly. And we had, we had one run through, and then we had the first show that night. Like, okay, I have to do something, or I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> so I, I decided, what's something I could do that would be interesting? So I played a different read every night. Oh, okay. yeah. 40, 40 different reads for the run. Were they all good reads? Most uh, <laughs> of them were. <laughs> so that, that made me, some of those shows made me really appreciate a good piece of cane. <laughs> <laughs> some of them a little more of a roll of a dice. Than yeah. <laughs> but m- most of them were good. There were only a couple where I was like, oh, this is uncomfortable. And you could tell from right from the beginning, you know, where, when a good read is good and when a bad read is bad. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for sharing all of your thoughts with our listeners. We so appreciate it. It was my pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Several of you have rated and commented on iTunes, which we appreciate so much. If you haven't yet, go ahead and do that for us. And keep in mind, you can get us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, YouTube, anywhere that you get your podcast, SoundCloud. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And if you want to follow us individually, she is Hello Obo on Instagram, and I'm Wilson Bassoon. Our next guest on Double Read Dish is the incredible Sarah Roper, solo oboe of the Real Orchestra Sinfonica de Sevilla. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>